have you ever heard about the disappearance of Joan Risch? On October 24, 1961, a young mother of two disappeared from her 1950s Cape Cod-style home in Lincoln, Massachusetts, never to be seen again. The only clues were a bloody kitchen, a blood trail leading out into the driveway, and the description of an unknown vehicle in her driveway just before she disappeared. What happened to Joan Risch? Was she abducted and killed that day? Did she injure herself and wander off? Or did she fake her death? Welcome to Nightmare Houses. Joan Catherine Bard was born in Brooklyn, New York on May 12, 1930 to upper-middle-class parents. When Joan was eight, her parents, Harold S. Bard and his wife, were killed in a fire in their Mountain Lakes, New Jersey home. Joan was out of town visiting her grandparents the night of the fire and was their only child. Her parents had been well-regarded and active in the community during their tragic deaths. The fire was accidental, with the couple suffocating, unable to escape. After her parents' deaths, Joan went to live with her mother's sister, Mrs. Alice Natras, and assumed that last name. Her stepfather, Frank E. Natras, was a songwriter and had his own music publishing company, but was largely unsuccessful. The couple had four other children, though Joan was the oldest of them all. Joan graduated from the New Rochelle High School in 1948. She was known for her blue eyes, writing manuscripts, and actively involved at school. She was part of the Social Service, Scholarship, and Chemistry Club, participated in the school newspaper, and played in after-school sports. She then attended Wilson College, graduating with a major in English in 1952. During that time, she started working at Harcourt Brace and World Incorporated. In 1954, a roommate invited her to Harvard University for a football game. She had set Joan up on a blind date. This was how she met Martin Marty Donald Risch, a Harvard Business Graduate School student at the time. Marty was born in October 1929 in New York and was a bright young man. The couple hit it off immediately and Joan was smitten. They were soon engaged, and on December 26, 1955, Joan and Marty were married in Huntington, Long Island. After the couple wed, they moved into a two-room apartment in Brooklyn, and the landlords described them as devoted, down-to-earth, and very quiet. Marty worked at the Regal Paper Company in New York, and Joan as a secretary to the director of the community book division of Thomas Y. Kroll Company, a New York publishing firm that she had been working with since the summer of 1956. Joan and Marty were bright and well-liked, quiet and reserved. In 1957, Joan left her job at Crowell when she discovered she was expecting her first child. A daughter, Lillian, was born later that year. Soon after, Marty relocated the family to the Ridgefield, Connecticut branch of the paper company. During her time in Connecticut, Joan was active in several civic organizations in her community, including the League of Women Voters. Friends depicted Joan as not exceptionally stylish, but well-dressed and never wearing heavy makeup, but she was always considered very attractive. She had brown hair, a pretty face, clear blue eyes, and loads of personality. In September 1959, the couple welcomed their second child, David. In June 1960, Marty took a new job as an executive at the Fitchburg Paper Company in Massachusetts, though he remained in Connecticut until the end of the year. 
The family moved to Lincoln, Massachusetts, an upscale suburb west of Boston, in April 1961. Joan and Marty purchased a modest two-story, white Cape Cod-style home built around 1950 on Old Bedford Road in Lincoln, Massachusetts. The early history of the quaint home is unclear, though the house was likely built sometime between 1948 and 1951. The property was one of several late 1940-early 1950 homes built on Old Bedford Road, each with a little less than an acre of land per parcel. Each house was surrounded by trees, as it was in a wooded location, and the houses were set back several yards away from the street, giving each home a decent-sized front yard. There was a driveway, and the house had an attached garage connecting the breezeway side entrance. The front door opened into a hall just in front of the entrance. The downstairs contained a living room, dining room, kitchen, and a small bathroom. The breeze side entry led right into the kitchen. Upstairs were three bedrooms and an additional bathroom. The property's location is now in the Minuteman National Historic Park area and close to the Hascom Air Force Base. Their home was on Old Bedford Road, commonly used as a shortcut for airmen as it was close to Route 2A, which eventually connected to the more direct and later constructed Route 2. After giving birth, Joan became a housewife and a homemaker, raising the couple's two young children while her husband worked Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Things seemed to be going well for the family of four those first few months in Massachusetts. Joan seemed very happy and was adapting to their new life in Lincoln and decorating their new home. Neighbors, friends, and family knew Joan and Marty to be very meticulous and organized, and six months after moving in, the dining room was still unfurnished. They likely didn't have a set for this home and were saving to buy a new one. Tuesday, October 24th, 1961 started just like most mornings. However, Joan's husband had a quick overnight business trip to New York that day. He left their house at 6.50 a.m. for an 8 a.m. flight to New York, taking off from Logan Airport. He made his flight and was in Manhattan later that morning. It was not unusual for Marty to travel for business. This seemed like a routine trip for the paper company. After Marty left, Joan got up with the children and made breakfast. The children were four and two at the time and weren't enrolled in school yet. The day before, Joan saw a friend who thought she was acting a little strange. She called that morning to ask Joan if everything was okay, which she said it was, but that she was running late for a scheduled dentist appointment that morning, so the two didn't talk long. Next, Joan dropped her two-year-old son off across the street at the Barker's house and then proceeded to her appointment with her daughter. According to her dentist, Joan had over 10 cavities and had one filled that morning. She then scheduled a follow-up dentist appointment for the following week, Tuesday, October 31st, 1961, for additional work. She then went shopping and ran other errands before returning home. When she got home, she picked up her son from the neighbor's house, chatting for a few minutes with Mrs. Barker, before Joan headed back to her house. Up until this moment, all seemed like a perfectly normal day for Joan Risch and her children. When she got home, she put her son down for a nap, typically between noon and waking him up around 2 p.m. She made herself and Lillian lunch, and then Barker's young son came over to play with Lillian in their yard. Joan liked to garden and read, and a lawn chair was outside that day, where she probably sat out to watch the children while she read. Then, around 1.55 p.m. that afternoon, Joan walked Lillian and the neighbor's child back to the Barker's yard. 
She walked them across the street, but did not tell her neighbor, Mrs. Barker, about the kids being back in her yard. Shortly after, Mrs. Barker realized the children were in her yard and invited them into the kitchen after she helped her son put on some tricycle wheels. At around 2.15 p.m., Mrs. Barker looked out of her kitchen window, which faced the Rish's home, and noticed Joan was in her driveway near her car, a 1951 faded blue Chevrolet. She was wearing a trench coat and standing near her car parked in the driveway. Mrs. Barker thought Joan was holding something red in her hands at the time, but couldn't see enough as it was over a hundred yards away and many trees were obstructing her view. At around 3.45 p.m., Mrs. Barker walked Lillian home so she would be home in time for supper, but she only walked the child up into her driveway. Around 4.30 p.m., Lillian returned to Mrs. Barker's house alone and crying. She told Mrs. Barker that she couldn't find her mother anywhere and red paint was all over the kitchen floor. Mrs. Barker ran next door with Lillian and another child to the Rish residence, calling for another neighbor on Old Bedford Road for assistance. In the kitchen, they spotted blood on the floor and evidence of a struggle. The wall-mounted telephone's handheld receiver was broken off and placed into a nearby wastebasket, the receiver end dangling off the lip of the basket and the spiral cord neatly tucked in. Someone moved the wastebasket from under the sink cabinet to the center of the room, and a small table located directly under the wall-mounted phone was knocked over, and a nearby telephone book was opened to the emergency number section. A bloody thumbprint and a palm print not belonging to Joan were also found in the kitchen. Blood smears were all over the kitchen wall, and a blood trail led from the side door from the breezeway and into the driveway, where the trail stopped. Mrs. Barker quickly grabbed the two-year-old in the crib upstairs and called authorities from her home. The baby was still in his sleep clothes and was wet, indicating his mother probably never woke him up. Police believe Joan was beaten, punched, or somehow injured by an attacker that either broke in or was invited in and then carried out by her assailant through the side door and placed into his car. Mrs. Barker recalled seeing a blue or gray 1955 or 1956 Oldsmobile sedan sometime between 3.15 and 3.45 p.m. right before bringing Lillian back to her house in the Rush driveway, saying it was there and did not leave for over an hour. She also reported seeing it drive down the road earlier that afternoon around 2.30 p.m. The single bloody thumbprint on the phone mount, two fingerprints, and a partial palm print found on the wall were tested, but they were not a match to anyone in the system. They were not Jones prints, and they have never been identified. In addition to the blood in the kitchen, a blood trail led from the baby's room upstairs to the kitchen and outside to the Rich family's driveway, where it stopped near her parked car. Blood drops are found on the hood and the trunk of the vehicle itself, but no footprints were found anywhere. There was no sign of Joan herself inside the residence. Someone attempted to clean the blood in the kitchen with paper towels and a pair of her young son's coveralls before quickly abandoning the task. Besides the fingerprints and reports of the blue or gray 1950s Oldsmobile, there weren't many clues. Authorities searched in the woods behind the property and surrounding area and called local hospitals, but found nothing. This area of Massachusetts has a lot of lakes, streams, and wetlands, and there are heavily wooded portions of Lincoln and a lot of farmland back in 1961. Based on the evidence, the most likely theory is that Joan was injured and abducted from her home. However, there were a few other theories that were suggested. 
Joan injured herself in the kitchen and wandered off to the nearby Route 2A to seek assistance from passing motorists, but was struck and killed. Joan could have hurt herself at home, either by accident or intentionally, and left, getting a ride from someone passing along on Route 2A. Joan could have faked her death and left on her own accord. Joan had an illegal operation in her kitchen that went wrong. Joan suffered from a miscarriage and wandered off looking for help. Her husband described her as someone who would fight for her children, and leaving them willingly was highly unlikely. Joan was also meticulous and organized. The likelihood of having an abortion in her kitchen with her children and neighbor next door was highly improbable. Massachusetts State Police put out a nationwide bulletin for the missing woman, and authorities and volunteers searched the area. Mrs. Barker described Joan as seemingly being in a hurry the last day she saw her, like she was being chased. She also thought she heard Joan yelling at someone at some point, but presumed it was her talking to her two-year-old or chasing him around the yard after his nap. Another neighbor, a teenager on her way home from school, also described a 1950s blue or gray Oldsmobile in the Risch driveway the afternoon she disappeared. When she disappeared, Joan was wearing a gray cloth coat, dress, and navy sneakers with white piping. She may have also been wearing a white scarf, though Joan was not known for wearing scarves. She wore her wedding band, a slim platinum band with four diamond chips, and a tight faux pearl necklace. During the subsequent months following her disappearance, Joan had taken out as many as 25 books from the library on murders or unexplained disappearances during the six months she lived in Lincoln, leading authorities to believe she had staged her disappearance. However, Joan was a voracious reader, and she took out many book genres from the public library. On the day of her disappearance, Joan was reading a book about the Tudors, which was found face down on the kitchen table, indicating she was reading when possibly interrupted. Again, the likelihood and evidence to support Joan staged her disappearance are low, and something that seems to have been sensationalized over the decades since she was found missing. Throughout the early 1960s, authorities conducted thorough searches and interviews with many potential suspects, but nothing panned out. They interviewed anyone who came to the house that morning, including a milkman and someone who came to pick up dry cleaning. Authorities fingerprinted and interviewed men stationed at Ascom Air Force Base, minus the civilians that worked there, but again, nothing matched or led to further clues. Anytime human remains were found in the vicinity, they were tested, but it was never Joan. The case was considered New England's biggest mystery at the time, but was later overshadowed by a more notorious case, like the Boston Strangler. In 1961, Boston also went through an enormous corruption scandal at the top levels, which may have preoccupied authorities. Lincoln police immediately contacted the Massachusetts State Police who took control of the investigation. Following his wife's disappearance, Marty Risch continued to live in the Cape-style home in Lincoln with his two children. He was questioned by investigators, but was cleared of involvement in her disappearance, given his solid alibi of being away on business that day. He was always cooperative and immediately flew home from New York upon finding out about his wife. Marty hoped that his wife would return someday, possibly a victim of amnesia, who would eventually regain her memory and return home. In 1972, Joan's possession and the home they purchased together were put solely into his name via probate court, possibly to prepare him to sell the house. 
He was one of the last residents on Old Bedford Road to have his property acquired by the U.S. government for the Minuteman Historical Park. In April 1973, 12 years after he bought it with his wife, he sold the home and moved to another house in Lincoln, Massachusetts, on Winter Avenue, about four miles from where he lived with Joan. One proposed site for Joan's body has been near the Winter Street exit of Route 128, which was under construction at the time of her disappearance in 1961. In 1975, the home was moved off-site to Lexington, Massachusetts, so the land could look more like it did back in the colonial era. The U.S. government established the Minuteman Park in 1959. Over the 1960s and early 1970s, the government would continue to acquire the parcels of land around Old Bedford Road. It's near the Bloody Angle, a section of Battle Road in Lincoln, Massachusetts, on which two battles were fought on April 19, 1775, during the Battles of Lexington and Concord, in the first stage of the American Revolutionary War. The stretch of the main east-west running road turns north for about 500 yards and then east as per the direction of travel during the British regulars retreat from the nearby Concord to Boston. Today, only two houses from the late 1940s and early 50s on Old Bedford Road exist, seemingly unoccupied. One of the remaining homes is the residence of the Barkers, who lived across the street and played a pivotal role in her case. But just like Joan, her house has disappeared. By the late 1970s, her case had become cold, and hope that Joan would return or be found alive dwindled as time passed. In 1996, 35 years after her mysterious disappearance, the Boston Globe covered the case. Many believe that 31-year-old Joan Risch died that day, on October 24, 1961, likely not making it very far from her home. There are thoughts that Joan is a ghost running through the woods near the old Battle Road, perhaps joining the ghosts of British soldiers who died at the Bloody Curve nearly 200 years earlier. Her husband Marty never talked about the case and wasn't interested when the Boston Globe tried to interview him for their 1996 article. He was probably just sad, never knowing what happened to his wife. Marty Reich died in Lincoln at 79 after a long illness on June 22, 2009. He never remarried and he never had his wife declared legally dead. His daughter cared for him in the last few years of his life. Joan's case is the subject of the book A Kitchen Painted in Blood by Stephen H. Ahern, written in 2020. If you're interested in a more detailed and thorough account of this case, this book is highly recommended and can be found on Amazon. Joan's case is still open, and she remains a missing person since her body is missing. The house Joan disappeared from that late October day is no longer there. The woods around the property were searched, but there are also several bodies of water within a mile of Joan's home. Did someone follow Joan that afternoon, abduct her from her home and kill her? At the crime scene, evidence of drinking alcohol was found. Two empty bottles of whiskey, of which only one could be accounted for by Marty Rish, and five empty bottles of beer, likely the Miller Highlight from the empty package found on the floor. Mrs. Barker recalled seeing Joan at 2.15 outside by her car, carrying something red. Did Mrs. Barker see Joan getting the six-pack of beer from the trunk of her car? 
The distance was about a hundred yards away with the trees in the way. The red diamond-shaped logo could have been the small red thing Joan was holding, as it would have been the only color to stand out at that distance. Was Joan drinking alone, and that's why she ran the children over to Mrs. Barker's house without saying anything? Because Marty was away, Joan may have switched up her daily routine. Perhaps she felt she could relax a little more than she would with her husband around. It came out during the investigation that a few months before her disappearance, Joan had confided to her aunt and adoptive mother, Alice Natras, that her adoptive father, Frank, had been molesting her since she was in her early teens in a letter. Alice was so horrified by the letter's contents that she burned it. Did this personal family matter have anything to do with her disappearance? Unfortunately, in this case, much of the evidence surrounding it is unfounded. Reports of seeing Joan along the road logistically didn't make sense, and while a woman looks similar to Joan, it couldn't be definitively proven to be her. We know Joan was not alone in her kitchen that afternoon, sometime after 2.15 and before 3.45 p.m. She may have been familiar with the person, like an acquaintance or family member, and they may have been drinking together. Then, something happened that caused things to escalate quickly. Perhaps Joan was punched, possibly in the face, and began bleeding heavily from her nose. Police estimated that the victim had lost about a pint of blood, though forensic teams estimated less than half a pint, which is not an insignificant amount of blood, but not enough to be fatal. Forensic analysis believed that the blood was caused by a hemorrhage from a superficial wound from the head, possibly a nosebleed. Joan was five foot seven and weighed about 120 pounds. It wouldn't be hard to believe she was quickly overpowered, especially if she had been drinking. Perhaps after being punched or injured, Joan ran to the telephone, quickly looking up emergency numbers. She was still relatively new to the area, and the 911 emergency system did not exist yet. Things escalated further at this point in the corner of the kitchen where the telephone was. Joan may have been trying to call for help. The police could not rule out a strangulation. During the struggle, a white table under the phone was knocked over, and the roll of drawing paper kept underneath went rolling towards the sink, adding to the chaotic scene. Perhaps the attacker, knowing that her other child would be home shortly, panicked and decided to move her before being found. He attempted to clean the blood, but realized it would take forever, and just left it. The theories that Joan wandered off, planned her death, or had a botched abortion are again unfounded. Thanks to online web sleuthing and the rise in popularity of the true crime genre, the case has been gaining more attention in the over 60 years since Joan vanished. If you or anyone else you know has any information regarding the whereabouts of Joan Risch, please reach out to the Lincoln Police Department at 781-259-8111 or contact the Massachusetts State Police. Joan's children are alive today, but the nightmare of not having the closure of what happened that day continues. The family's privacy should be respected. Today, the house where Joan disappeared is gone. We'll never know what happened to Joan that day. The crime scene is long gone. Hopefully, Joan Rish's whereabouts and what happened that day will be brought to light. Thank you for listening to Nightmare Houses. For more information, including photos and references, please visit www.nightmarehouses.com. Until next time, goodbye.